you know that I, um, many of you know that I'm a logic professor. I've taught in a philosophy department at Northwest University for about 13 years, every fall teaching a logic course. I've discovered that people, all of us, at different points, kind of despise logic. Logic is kind of a painful thing. When we realize that our beliefs have implications that are necessary and inescapable, it kind of feels like being locked into something, maybe that you don't want to be locked into. In fact, it kind of feels like death. When you realize that the various things that you believe sometimes yield consequences that are undesirable and necessarily so. We're going to talk about logic and we're going to talk about death today. We're going to see how the great theologian, the Apostle Paul, was an expert practitioner, expert utilizer of logic to bring out the implications of the gospel, but wonderfully, not to the end of death, but unto the end of life. So given our tendency to be a little bit sour on this great rational tool, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to open his word up to us that we might derive life from it. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, there's something painful about feeling as if we're locked in to anything. Lord, a lot of times we want to maintain various beliefs, various ideas and plans that hopelessly conflict with one another and not have to deal with the implications of that conflict. Lord God, I pray that you would renew our minds today. That you, Lord God, would give us peace and hope and gladness that by faith in Jesus Christ, we are locked in, not to death, but to the resurrection on the last day. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your mighty Holy Spirit. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 12 to 19. When we're done, I'll say this is God's word. You can respond. Thanks be to God. We'll all rise to our feet and sing a song of thanksgiving for God's holy scriptures. So please follow along. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, We are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. This is God's word. Trinitas Church, these verses put us face to face with Jesus Christ as the basis of a logical argument. You could never get around it. The Apostle Paul is all about the use of reasoning and logic to draw out the implications of the Christian faith. 
Seven times he puts to use a classic argument form that logicians talk about, and they use the Latin phrases modus ponens and modus tollens to describe these argument forms. I'll make it very simple for you. These argument forms begin with an if-then statement as a premise, and then a statement of fact, and then a conclusion, and Paul does this seven times. It's all very simple. Imagine I said this. If the animal is a dog, then it's a mammal. Lassie is a dog. What is the natural conclusion? Lassie is a mammal. Bingo. That is modus ponens. You can do it. You can do it as well by negating the consequent. You could say something like this. If it is a mammal, excuse me, if, <laughs> if it's a mammal, then it's an animal. Then you could say it's a rock, which is, of course, not an animal, and therefore it's not a mammal. That's called modus tollens. Do you believe that Paul does this seven times? He sets forth seven if-then statements with a view to making an argument like we've just made. This is one of the greatest validations of the science of theology that you could ever come across in Scripture. Theologians draw out the necessary implications of the biblical teaching. They've been doing it for 2,000 years. And in different centuries, different theologians have drawn out the sense and implications of different doctrines. So, for example, in the 3rd century, theologians committed themselves to understanding the better, the doctrine of the Trinity. In the 16th century especially, focus on justification by faith alone and the implications of it were drawn out by theologians. Here in this passage, at the very beginning of the life of the church in the 50s AD, Paul is already reasoning like a brilliant logician. Paul makes this profound claim. You cannot believe in Christ's resurrection and fail to believe in the resurrection of all believers. The two are completely bound up with one another, says the Apostle Paul. He says it like this. He says it at least three times. But in verse 16, he says, If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And as we saw last week, Christ has been raised. Therefore, all of the dead must be raised. Now, many of us might wonder why there is such a vital connection in Paul's mind between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of everybody else. And we've got to explore his reasoning. Friends, if you really understand the gospel, you understand that the gospel fundamentally asserts and requires that believers be raised from the dead. Some of you might not remember our series through the gospel of Mark. We're going to have to go back to that for a moment to see what Christ has really accomplished you see, before Jesus came, the Jewish rabbis understood that resurrection, final judgment, and an eternal kingdom awaited God's people. They got all of that. Let me tell you what Jesus did in his ministry. You may have never heard this before, but what Jesus came to do was to bring eternity into time. He came to bring the future into the present. 
This is the stuff science fiction movies are all about. Let me explain how Jesus did just that. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus shows up on the scene in Galilee, his message is this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand right in front of your face. It is here. He was telling the Jewish people that that great eternal kingdom that they awaited at the end of time was actually right here, right now, present in time. Because Jesus was the king of that kingdom to come. So when Jesus walked the earth, what did he do? He went about healing every sickness, casting out demons, exercising power and mastery over the elements themselves, like storms and seas. Jesus was showing the nation of Israel what eternity looks like. It looks like total physical health, total dominion and forgiveness of sins with me. He was bringing eternity into time. Jesus was doing even more than that. He was also showing the people of Israel what the final judgment would look like, and you've got to get this in your mind, what Jesus did on the cross was taste the final judgment in the middle of human history so we could all see what it would look like. This ought to terrify you for a moment about how serious your sin is, because this is what the cross tells you. It tells you that when God's favorite person in reality, his own perfect son, Jesus Christ, bears human sin, it's being born by God's favorite person isn't even enough to make God not hate sin. Jesus goes to the cross bearing your and my sin, and the Father pours out on him wrath incomprehensible. Friends, this ought to give you a sense of the seriousness of your sin before God. Jesus shows you that it is profoundly serious, that his father must judge it even when he bears it. Jesus shows us the judgment at the end in the middle of time. We all know that Jesus was raised from the dead after he died on the cross. That was because he was the perfectly righteous man who did not even sin in the midst of great passion and trial. How do you suppose it will go for the rest of us who are sinners all throughout our lives and have no righteousness to plead? We will be under the wrath of God forever if we do not receive Jesus Christ. The last thing Jesus shows us in his ministry, he even is the first fruits of, is the resurrection itself. The nation of Israel always understood that resurrection must occur, but they understood it for this reason. The sins you've committed, you committed in a body. This means that your eternal punishment must happen in a body if it's going to be equitable. The resurrection, therefore, was a terrifying thing. A terrifying thing for sinners. Jesus came to transform the resurrection into good news as opposed to bad news. Jesus, after dying on the cross, rises from the dead, goes to the right hand of God. And he shows us what our future, our eternity can look like if we should receive him. Resurrection to life and glory and dominion and reigning. This is the gospel. It presupposes a great exchange, whereas Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins, he bore our sins, 
That we might be saved in him and resurrected with him. That he might give us his righteousness, his future, his resurrection. This is the gospel. When you understand all this, friends, you realize that it is impossible to believe in Jesus' resurrection without believing in the resurrection of believers. The whole point of what Jesus came to do was to bring a resurrection to life to you and me that we might have hope even in death. You can't have one without the other. How bizarre would it be if Jesus rose from the dead just to tell humanity, hey humanity, look at my best miracle, resurrection to life and glory. Well, don't get your hopes up. It's not for you. It's just for me. Would make no sense. Therefore, Paul twice says, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you, Corinthians, say that there is no resurrection of the dead? They come together as one package. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, the two go together. The beautiful thing about what Paul is saying is that if we know the logic of belief in Christ, we are locked in to a supernaturalism, to a belief in the future where there is hope and life for believers. We're locked in. Paul also draws out a number of other inescapable implications of the resurrection. Paul says this, you can't say that the apostles were men who had a good message even if Jesus didn't rise. As Paul puts it, the contrary is true. If Christ be not raised in our preaching, is in vain. Paul says our fundamental message is empty. You can't go around commending these men for being good teachers. Paul says we're not even good people if Christ didn't rise from the dead. He says we are even found to be false witnesses of God, witnesses of God, that's liars, if Christ is not raised. Paul challenges as well the assumptions of the Corinthians, saying you can't even think good things about yourselves if you deny the resurrection. He says this, your faith is empty and baseless if Christ be not raised, because this is the heart and soul of our faith. Friends, we get this in almost every other area of life, and it's strange how when it comes to religion, when it comes to spirituality and faith, we are also comfortable holding different beliefs that contradict one another. You get it in every other realm of life. Let's take diets. Some of you have met my big brother. His name's Dustin. Dustin lost a bunch of weight on the keto diet. How many know what the keto diet is? Anybody? It's a very straightforward thing. You don't eat any carbs, and what you do do is you eat meat and some green leafy vegetables, and that's about it. That's what you do on the keto diet. Now, in the Bosterman household, Dustin might not know this, but in the Heather and Brant Bosterman household, the phrase, I'm doing keto, has become a running joke, okay? We actually use the phrase, I'm doing keto, anytime we do anything in our meal plan that looks remotely like the keto diet. It makes no sense at all. I'll give you an example. You go to Dairy Queen, you eat an entire ice cream cone, every bit of ice cream in that cone, and then you throw away the sugar cone. And you go, I'm doing keto. Can you tell? The best is when you use it for things that are actually completely unhealthy. So you eat a dinner full of carbs, spaghetti or something, put the kids to bed, You watch a show at around 8 o'clock, eat half a bag of Doritos. And then at 10 o'clock, when you shouldn't be eating anything at all on any diet, 
So I go into the kitchen, start making a steak on my foreman grill, and my wife comes around the corner. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, hey, hey, it's okay. I'm doing keto. Dude, can't you see? This is healthy. It's good for you. And the funny thing about this, guys, and we all laugh, is this. It's the, the fact is, when you do the things I just described, you're actually not doing half of keto. You're not doing one-third of keto. You're actually just not doing keto at all. Zero keto is happening if you eat any carbs. It's not the sort of thing that you can be doing at noon and not doing at three and then doing again at eight o'clock. You can't. It's not the way it works because your body has to go into this state called ketosis where it starts burning more fat because you're not eating carbs at all. Friends, to give you a simple analogy, to claim faith in Christianity or Christ and to deny the resurrection of Christ or of believers is like doing keto and eating carbs. The two literally cannot be reconciled. This is the great argument of Paul. Paul says very simply, if Christ be not raised, you are still in your sins. It's very simple. If you don't have a savior who conquered death in the body that you might the same, you are still in your sins. In verse 18, he says, if Christ be not raised, then your Christian brothers and sisters and family members, they're just dead. That's it. He says, in fact, if Christ be not raised, everyone in this room, we are most of all to be pitied among humanity. It's a pitiable thing who we are if Christ be not raised. Friends, I think you can understand the logic of Paul's argument, but I actually fear that most of us suffer from a pervasive mythology that makes this argument very hard to understand. Let me ask you if you've ever entertained this idea in your mind. Have you ever thought of death in and of itself and apart from Jesus as a sort of release from your physical body as a prison? You ever thought of it that way? I've literally watched cartoons, old cartoons, where Bugs Bunny goes up as an angelic figure into the air after some sort of strange death. I've seen this. How many of you have ever thought of death as a moment when your spirit springs from your body like a free sprite to roam the universe, perhaps? I would submit it's in the back of all of our minds because it is such a pervasive myth. It's a very strange view. You would never, ever gather that view of death if you read the Bible. You'd never view death in these terms if you took scripture seriously. But I'll bet most of us have thought of death like this before. Friends, I'm going to have to tell you about the terrifying reality of death. Friends, death is not the moment when you spring from your body as if a prison. You take death apart from Christ, and this is all it is. Death is the moment when you, your body, rather your spirit, springs into a prison from which it can never leave. To put the matter simply, if this room gets a little bit too hot for you, how are you going to leave it? You're going to use your body, and you're going to get up, and you're going to go. Death is that place where you don't have a body anymore, and your mobility is gone. 
I'll put the matter another way. Ask yourself this question. If you begin to sour on your current friends, how might you go about making new ones? By mental telepathy? Or might you take your body to a different place like a book club or take your body to a computer or to a chat room or might you go somewhere? Friends, the only way that you have ever made a friend in your entire life is with your body and at death, that is the point where you will make no more new friends or relationships. I'll ask you another question. How many of you don't really like your current reputation? People don't look very highly upon you. How might you change it? The only answer you can give is by doing certain noble things in the body that other people learn of and that change your reputation. Death is the point where you cannot change your reputation ever again. If the bulk of your memories are sad, I ask you another question. How might you make new ones? Would you maybe go on vacation to a new place to see wonderful and exciting things and to have better memories made? And how would you do that but for with your body? To make the matter very simply, friends, death is that point at which your capacity for life, growth, mobility, change, even reconciliation to other people are gone. Death is the loss of mobility, the inability to make new memories. It is the inability to undergo any moral change in yourself ever and again forevermore. You want a definition of death? It is like this. It is the point at which you are finished. It is the point at which that part of you where you get to have a hand in making it and forming it is gone. Death is when you're finished. I hope it is utterly clear to you that death is not a matter of springing from the prison of the body, but springing into a prison that apart from Christ, there is no release. There is rather only a fearful expectation for a resurrection unto eternal death. There's this moment, if you like thrill rides, where you get strapped in and um, you can't get out of the seat you're in. It's a bit of a terrifying moment. There's actually a point where the operator of the ride cannot turn the ride off anymore, and you're just in it. My aunt, who uh, loves Disneyland and California Adventure, she's been on the, there's this ride called the Malibu, where it like, shoots you up in the air real fast. Been on it tons of times. There's this one time, for some reason, when she sat down, she felt like she didn't want to be on it, but they already had pushed the button to put the ride in motion, and she starts freaking out and convulsing, I mean, screaming. I can't, I can't imagine being the person next to her, <laughs> losing her mind on this ride, because she's stuck. She's just getting flung into the air, and that's it. There's no getting off. Friends, this is a rather strange picture, but uh, death is like being strapped into an eternal Malaboomer. <laughs> it's never going to stop. Apart from Christ, you can't get off. One of the great philosophers of the 20th century, Martin Heidegger, he talked about this moment when you realize your finitude and you grasp it as a moment of dread, pure dread. This point at which you are done point when you're done you know the funny thing about this horrible reality of death is that we forget it 
I'm gonna ask you all to do a mental experiment right now. Real quick, mental experiment. Zero in on, on this with me. I want you to start listing in your head your biggest problems right now. The biggest things that got you down. Just start listing them. I will bet not a single one of you in this room list off the top of your head, I'm going to die. I'll bet not one of you mentioned that unless you happen to currently at this moment have a terminal illness and that's an imminent reality. The rest of you, you don't even list this as a problem. I'm gonna tell you something right now as a basic thesis. Every one of us thinks that we got 99 problems, but let me tell you something, every one of us only has one. And the 99 other things you were listing in your head, those are just the ways we use to forget about the death that lies ahead for all of us. Did you hear that? All of your biggest fears, pains, and frustrations are really and only just about death. Do you believe that? And all the things you mentioned at the front of your mind as your big problems are the things you use to forget death and how it's not working out so well to do that. I'm going to expound this basic idea just with three examples. The things I'll bet you mentioned in your mind, I'll just mention three. One might be the service that you're locked into. For a man, it's being locked into a job where you know that the greater part of your time and energy, maybe even the best of you, is not in control, your control, but you're locked into giving it to someone else. And do you know what? That feels like death. Young men, the reason you don't want to get a job, here's the real reason you don't want to work 60 hours a week, is you know what death smells like and tastes like, and it feels like being locked into something that you can't stop doing, and you're stuck. And you know what? That's a foretaste of what your grave is like. You can't move. Many of the ladies in this room, you know what it's like when you have kids. All of a sudden, you're locked into a service you can't get out of, and you're stuck there. And those former periods of life where you explore yourself, you indulge your own interests, in a sense, they're all kind of gone, but for very few. You know that it feels like death. The very same thing is true of serving with your church. You know, the most meaningful type of service is long-term, steadfast, quality service where you labor to communicate well with others and to do those things feels like being locked into something deathly. And many of us run from those things like the plague. This is a very strange thesis for you all, but real service tastes like death. Fleeting service that you only do when you feel like doing it is like a smokescreen to forget about how bad the problem of death really is. It's a smokescreen to make us feel like the problem isn't that bad. It's the sort of thing that we could tend to when we feel like it. Ask yourself if that's you. I'll say the second thing you might have listed in your top 10 biggest problems might have to do with friendship. I've discovered in my capacity as a minister, both in the church and outside the church, in our greater society, almost everybody feels like they have no friends, or at least not the friends they want. Everywhere. Without exception, without fail, ask yourself if this is you. 
We're all moving so quickly and dialed in to different things on our phones that most of us forget what friendship is. And I find that most of the time when people say, I don't have any friends, here's what they don't mean. They don't mean that I lack people around me who are good examples, who I perhaps see seldom, well, because they're working all the time, but who encourage me and challenge me by their example. They almost never mean that. When people say they don't have friends, they mean I don't have recreation buddies who largely agree with me in all things political, religious, and social, and who dislike all of the same things with me and commiserate with me. They almost never mean someone who will correct me for a sour disposition or joylessness or gossip or any of these sins that actually make us worse people. They almost never mean that there are lacking to me groups of people who I could be with, but who are actually just really challenging because they lack social sense and I don't like to be around them. We all have those things. Guys, I'm going to tell you something right now. Real friendship from others and being a real friend kind of tastes like death. Having someone who will actually call you out for your defects of character feels like that point when you're in the grave and you cannot change yourself anymore and the moral record you have made for yourself is in stone, never to be moved. And a real friend, a real friend points you to how in this life to have better character. But that condemnation feels like death. You know what? Mere recreation buddies, I hate to tell you all this, they're like a smoke screen that death is coming. They're the people you surround yourself with to feel like you're alive and good and okay, that you're not that bad or big of a problem, and they will affirm you in that mythology nonstop to the end of your life. When you're going to hit a grave someday where you realize the opposite is true of yourself and of all of them. Proverbs 18.24 says that a man of too many friends comes to ruin because they're a smokescreen. I would just ask you, is Jesus being a bad friend or a good friend when he told Peter, I know you better than yourself, Peter. You're going to deny me three times. Is he raining on Peter's parade or a good friend? The third thing that you might have mentioned when you mentioned your biggest problems, and this everybody mentioned, it's on your list. If it's not number one, it's number two, or it's number three. It's not lower than that. It's money. The number one candidate to help us all forget about death in this life is money without question. You have lots of money. You'll have lots of people who want to be around you. You'll be able to buy leisure, opportunity to exercise, nice surroundings. You'll be able to buy friends. There is nothing in all of reality that could make you think that you're going to live forever more than money. You might even think you could buy the best doctors to save you from any type of illness. There's even a vision of money that we have where we go, well, when my every recreational need is met, that's how I remind myself I'm not dying, then I'll leave a few crumbs for the kingdom and for Christ and for his people. You all know that when you actually give your money to where it ought to go, it feels like death. Bills taste like death. Taxes taste like death. Tithing the first fruits of your income tastes like death because it means you can't prioritize your toys, your outings, or your comforts. These are the ways we hide from death. Friends, I'm gonna put this very simply for you. If your vision of Christianity involves an unchecked fear of long-term discipline service, a fear of honest friends, a fear of a sacrificial use of your money. You fear death. 
and you haven't bit into the resurrection and what it's all about as you could and should. If you're constantly pursuing leisure, recreation buddies, or costly toys, you are trying to the best of your abilities to forget about death, and it is empty, pitiable. It's the sort of thing that's a bondage to sin. You know, there's a guy who had all this stuff. His name was Solomon. Here's what Solomon said. Come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it was futility, empty. I said of laughter, it is madness. All of these things, it's madness. And it's in this light, when we understand the problem of death, friends, that we can really begin to get the resurrection. Let me tell you what this good news says to you and me who are afraid of death. This good news tells us That if we believed in Christ, we await an eternity full of freedom, life, friendship, and outright domination of this creation that gets us down. And for eternity at that, this is what we have to await us. It means that the amount of pure pleasure and gladness and wholeness is more than any concept of more that we have ever thought on in this life. It is more than more. It is a peace and a wholeness so boundless that it dwarfs the Montana sky and the expanse of the Pacific Ocean. It is wholeness forever. And do you know what that means for you and me? It means that death, no matter how ferocious it may be in itself, it is now a laughable enemy to us in all of its forms. This is what it means for you and me. We can look at the long-term principled service of our jobs and our families and the church and we can look at it and say, we're gonna embrace it. And when we do, we are looking death square in the eyes and we're saying, I'm not afraid of you, death. All this heavy labor for 70 years of my life is like a summer job. It's like a summer job against the backdrop of the reigning life that I've already got one foot inside of. Trinitas Church, when we have friends who challenge us positively, maybe even friends who kind of weigh us down because of a lack of social sense, do you know what you're doing when you embrace them? You are looking death square in the eyes and saying, I'm not afraid of you, death. See, I'm not using these people to forget I'm dying. I have these friends because I'm full of life and a river of life is flowing out of me to them. I'm not using them to hide what I'm afraid of. I'm there for them because I'm an expression of the resurrection to come. They might have life in this life. You believe in the resurrection, you will not fear your tithe or your taxes or your bills. When you give these things, you will say, I'm not afraid of you, death. See, I wasn't looking to this money to save me from the death to come or to help me forget it. I am looking to Christ and I am so glad to be more invested in his kingdom than in the New York Stock Exchange. I could not care less about paying taxes to Caesar. No problem. I'll pay any government rent for the opportunity to represent Christ in this fallen world until the day I die and go and be with the Lord. I have no fear of you, death. Trinitas Church, when we believe in the resurrection, it is hilarious, but even physical death, as bad as it is, is made into our servant. That's why Paul can say it, to die is gain in Philippians 1. 
Because our afterlife is not a dreadful prison where we're strapped into something terrifying. It is a place of total anticipation. Let me tell you this. When the ominous voice of death comes to you like it did to Heidegger and says, You are almost finished with yourself, son. A Christian can say, Oh, what good news. I wasn't doing too good with myself. I can't wait to be done. And let the living Lord take over. And let me share in his life. Friends, death can even bring us comfort against the deathly tasks that we have in this life. I can't tell you. Next time we have a service sign-up list, I can't wait for this. And someone's like, oh man, I have to sign up for like six Sundays a month and be in the catechism? I just don't know I can do that. Here's gonna be my response. Hey dude, I got good news for you. Guess what? You could be dead in three months and then you'd only have three Sundays of service. It could all be over just like that. Oh, glorious death. All of it could be over, friend. Good news, good news. Some of this sounds crazy, friends. I'll tell you about a man who could look at death and laugh. For about two years, we prayed for Reverend Andrew Allen, PCA church planter. He had uh, cancer, you know, terminal cancer. He lived for about a year longer than they even expected. One thing I'll tell you about Alan is that up until the day he died, this man showed up to the credentials committee at Presbytery. Friends, the credentials committee is the worst committee to be on. You work and work and work and work. You have the most work to do. And if anybody ever could have skipped that job, it could have been the guy who had terminal cancer. I distinctly remember, I don't think it was his last meeting with us, But we were talking about how everybody was leaving the committee and we needed more people to get on. Andrew had the most profound capacity to laugh even in the face of death. As we're talking about how everybody's leaving, he raises his hand and he goes, guys, I hear some people are just dying to get off this committee. (laughs) You want to talk about a man who could taste the resurrection and laugh in the face of death? It wasn't just the guy who made that comment. It's the guy who said, I'm going to use my last moments of life to serve. I'm not afraid of you, death. This is what it means to believe in the resurrection. This is what it means. Some of you might say, Brant, you really knocked on leisure and vacation and recreation pals and nice things and just doesn't sound right. Guys, those things aren't bad. But in Christ, we use all those things in different ways. We don't dream about a vacation home so we can live out our retirement in seclusion. We don't do that. We use these things as momentary respite in this life so we can get back into the game of dying because all of those things are cheap imitations compared to the resurrection that awaits us. We use them to be revived and to be built up so we can get back into the business of dying. That's what it is for us. That being said, if you're with us today and you don't know the Lord, I will have you know this truth and it is painful for me to say, unbeliever, you are on your way to being locked up in the prison of your own soul and an eternal punishment in your body and soul lest you receive Christ. Your recreations are one big exercise of forgetting death and I'll have you know, even as Christians, we sometimes lapse into the same problem. So here's my invitation, repent with us. Accept Jesus. 
bite into the resurrection, that confident hope of eternal glory. Bow your heads with me. Mighty Lord and God, we have feared death, all of us in this room, as we ought not. Some of us have pretended like death is for everyone and for all, sort of springing from a bodily prison. But apart from Christ, it's a springing into prison. Lord God, may we not live like the world does, trying to hide from death in our recreations, turning away from this imminent reality. Let us rather declare your triumph over it and embrace all those things that you have committed us to. God, I pray that we leave this place celebrating that the victory is won and our enemy is crushed. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.